Lots of businesses and their leaders certainly talk a good game about building communities, but many fall flat when it comes to demonstrating real substance behind the rhetoric. I'm happy to say that on today's programme, we're hearing from a trio of founders from two businesses who've definitely delivered on their dreams of creating communities, spanning the digital and brick and mortar divide, and constructing all of that on a foundation of shared values, a sense of purpose, and a clear passion for identifying and championing great independent businesses. Jeff Collison is one of the co-founders and the COO of FAIR, the online wholesale marketplace that connects independent brands with independent retailers, some 500,000 of them and counting. Jeff will explain what brands and retailers alike come to FAIR for, and also why FAIR's USP might be, in simple terms, to take things that big retailers have always had and give them to the little guys, allowing smaller players to be competitive. Jeff will also talk to us about that passion for building community and underscore why having a values-oriented mission might be the most important tool in the entrepreneur's arsenal. Later in the programme, we'll also head off for a bit of a bimble. Intrigued? Well, allow the co-founders of the Bimble app, Francesca Howland and Julia Malaby, to explain their mission to uncover hidden gems around the world, champion authentic independent businesses and change the way we all eat, shop and travel. It's been described as the Spotify of travel. I'll ask them exactly what that means. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. We start by crossing the pond to meet FAIR's COO, Jeff Collison. Jeff met his FAIR co-founders while they were all working at financial services company Square. And in 2017, they founded FAIR, driven by a shared mission to empower entrepreneurs and small business owners to chase their dreams and compete against global giants, perhaps a million times their size. Since then, FAIR has sustained extraordinary growth, but success hasn't necessarily come easy. It's a pleasure to welcome Jeff to the show. I'm interested in a sense that this role as somebody who's trying to sort of readjust or rebalance something that's skewed in favour of the big players, mm-hmm. because you have a small and ever decreasing number of real global players that dominate in some of these theatres. Yeah. And I guess what FAIR does is give scale, it gives opportunity to much, much smaller entrants. Is the ambition on that scale to try and level that kind of playing field, which is so uneven, or is that just a happy consequence of reaching a certain scale for FAIR? No, I, I, think, I think you hit it spot on. That's a huge motivation behind what we do. There's a values-driven kind of mission orientation for why we do it and, and kind of what motivates us. And then I think we feel like there's also trends that maybe folks didn't notice when we started the company or, or perhaps are underappreciated that, that we think is also giving those folks hopefully some kind of tailwinds and momentum to compete with the big folks. We definitely feel in, in our mission and hope is that if we can create a platform that aggregates all of these independent retailers and all of these independent brands around the world, we can make them just as big, if not bigger than the big folks. And we can give them the tools to compete. We can give them the leverage and buying power that comes from being unified and, and, and kind of being able to leverage their scale across an ecosystem and network of small folks. For us, that's just the future we want. We want a future where communities have independent brands, they have independent retailers. I think that is simply just a better world. I think consumers want that. I think it's more vibrant communities. And so it's definitely a kind of huge reason behind why we show up and what we do and, and a lot of what we're hoping to do. I think on, on the flip side, we also believe just that independent retail is more 
powerful and stronger than maybe people thought. When we first started the company, I think most of our retailers and most of our narrative was focused on offline retailers. So, you know, these are small corner shops, one or two retailers. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily thought you could build a really big business in that space. If you think back five, seven, 10 years ago, this was before maybe the Shopify or Squares of the world had demonstrated that there was a lot of momentum here. And people thought, you know, the prevailing narrative was the death of offline retail. Everything was moving online. And I think as, as we dug into that, we just didn't believe it. My co-founders and I, and, and a bunch of folks from, from Fair spent a lot of time at Square. Our experience there didn't really tell us that that offline retail was dying. We actually felt like there was a lot of strength there. Consumers were excited about it. And I think as we dug in, we realized that a lot of that narrative on the death of offline retail was kind of homogenizing offline retail when there was really two stories going on. Big box retailer, big box retail, you know, these, these big folks were struggling. And a big reason for that was their value prop and what they offered was very overlapping with online retail. So if you think of, you know, a Walmart or a Marks and Spencer, John Lewis, what they offer is, you know, what they've historically offered is we're going to have the most selection and the lowest prices and, you know, come in here and we're going to have everything you need and it's going to be super convenient and it's going to be the lowest price you can find. That's a pretty similar value prop to what the Amazons of the world started offering. And I think it was very difficult for those big box folks to be agile to compete when, when somebody was offering an overlapping, you know, and, and in many ways, better value prop. And I think you saw them struggle and the square footage dedicated to them struggle on the other hand, independent retail, these small folks, you know, they never had the biggest selection or necessarily the lowest prices, but what they had was connection to their community and ability to curate the right products and experience when you walked into their store. So in many ways, when kind of online came along, they had basically been building a value prop that was more durable because they had been facing that same value prop for big box folks. And so as we kind of dug into it, and as I think is, has really been proven over, you know, hopefully the last five or seven years, we saw that the strength of independent was actually stronger than, than people realized. Just to give one example, our favorite example, I think has been in most pitch decks for fair early on, is books. There's a big chain store in the US called Borders. And it went under in I think like 2005, 2006. And if you read the headlines and, and the stories from then, it was, there goes you know the death of offline books sales. You know It was Amazon's first category. The big box retailer just went under. There's not going to be any more bookstores in the real world. What's actually happened since then is the number of independent bookstores has actually doubled in the US. And you saw that kind of space created by some of the struggles of big box retail really filled by independent retail. And you know we think that's despite them not having a platform, not having a technology partner who's really specifically building for them. And so our hope is to, like you mentioned, build that platform that aggregates them, that hopefully accelerates the trend we think already exists and allows them to compete with those big folks. Look, I find that really interesting. And there's some other observations that I have about trends in this space. One of which, Jeff, is kind of the elephant in the room is, of course, you know, there's lots of these big secular trends, increased digitalization, all these other pressures, globalization, which obviously shape a lot of these forces, particularly in retail. What happens then to these models and the expectations when slap bang in the middle of that period of growth, you have something like a pandemic? Because obviously that accelerates some yeah. things. It just totally turns a whole load of other assumptions completely on its head. Does it serve, well, I guess on, on one level it serves as a salutary lesson to any entrepreneur, right? Which is that you never know what's around the next corner. But on another level, did it also, I don't know, did it surprise? Did you come to understand some of those themes that you've already been describing to us in a, in a different way and with a different nuance as a consequence of the pressures that that was exerting? Definitely. 
I think for us, the pandemic was obviously very scary for a ton of reasons, both the kind of global health implications and, and the effect on folks, maybe focus on kind of our business and, and our customers. It was very scary for us as a business because ultimately we are a reflection of the health of our brands and retailers. And at the beginning of the pandemic, it was very, very unclear how they were going to do, you know, specifically our retailers. I think uh, one of our board members put it pretty succinctly in kind of one of our early pandemic emergency board meetings, which was the government has basically said that none of your customers are allowed to operate. And that seems like it'll be pretty challenging for you. And he was, of course, alluding to all of our retailers that exist in the real world, not being allowed to open their shops, have customers come inside. And if they're not selling products, they're obviously not ordering products on fair, their health is in jeopardy. So I think that was super scary. And I think probably like a lot of technology companies or, or other folks, we were certainly surprised at, at kind of what played out next. We definitely, you know, internally tried to do everything we could to help our customers. We basically kind of dropped everything and we said, okay, what are the things we can do to help folks get through this? Let's change the product assortment and begin sourcing things that we know are selling. You know, obviously masks were, were a big thing that folks were looking for back then, but things like puzzles and loungewear and pajamas were also selling through really healthily for our retailers. So we tried to kind of really quickly change our assortment to support them. We tried to do things and, and did kind of execute against ensuring that they understood the financing that was available to them and the help that was available to them through government intervention. And there are lots of programs here in the States to help folks kind of bridge their cash flow. And then we tried to be more flexible with our terms and, and when folks had to pay us and kind of how we extended those. So that was kind of what we did. I would say what our customers did was even more consequential and touches on some of the trends that you mentioned. We really saw our customers hustle. I think not just in terms of finding the right products to put in their store to serve their communities, but also in adopting tools in a way that they hadn't before. You know, you mentioned some trends around, you know, the digitization of everything and globalization. And I think my perspective on those is that if equipped properly for smaller independent brands and retailers, if made accessible for them in a way that they can kind of use and integrate into their business, they can actually be really powerful to them. They don't have to be tools that kind of concentrate the dividends and into the bigger players if there are people building for them and, and if there's a way to, to kind of give that access to smaller retailers. And I think, you know, we saw our retailers do things that maybe they would have done over the next five or 10 years, but really got accelerated and condensed during the pandemic. You know, they adopted selling online and, and, and through online channels in a way that, that maybe they would have eventually, but you know, they started real world stores. They probably, you know, preferred to sell in the real world, but they saw the necessity and kind of where the future was going accelerate during the pandemic. They did things like in-store pickup and local delivery and adopted marketing channels they hadn't before. And I think that really helped them survive, you know, those early moments in the pandemic before things started coming a little bit back for them. And I think that definitely surprised us, just kind of the acceleration and the adoption of those tools, the health of our retailers recovering. And then maybe the other thing that is a little bit less about some of the digitization of tools or technology, but perhaps there's a little bit of a reaction to that is I think we saw consumers and communities really rallying around their local businesses. You know, I think we've long believed in the durability and the depth of consumer preference for local and consumer preference for handmade. There's some things you're just going to kind of buy online, but there's lots of things you want to shop for. And there's, there's lots of elements of your community that you want to support. I think you really saw the pandemic kind of accelerate and deepen that and put a little bit of a spotlight on how much communities value and care about their small businesses and rally around them in those times. Yeah. And Jeff, to that point, does it surprise you or perhaps you're unsurprised, given your background and your experience, that actually some of those values, that prioritising of local, a much deeper, you know, a really profound interest in genuine provenance and things like that, the stories behind products, that that travels so well? Because I guess 
it might be one of those things that you may feel would be lost in translation in different geographies or different demographies. Again, does what you've learned over the past few years, I don't know, did that fit with what your expectations were or were you surprised? Are you still surprised by how readily those values are, are shared and travel? It's such a good question because one of the things that we debated as we were considering expanding the business globally and international was how do we maintain a local feel and the values that we feel like really drive the business and, and are super clear to our customers and our employees and, and are a big reason for you know any success that we've had to date. And we had a, an intuition and you know we talked to customers a lot and we had maybe a, an expectation that the values of, of local, the values of craftsmanship, of stories, of connection and community were global and that a brand or a retailer in England or in Southern France or Italy, you know, shared a lot of the overlapping values and cares and concerns that someone in California or Texas does, but it was unknown. And it was also unknown for us how we could make sure that the brand still had that resonate. There were certainly companies that we felt like had done this well. You know, there were big global technology companies. I think Airbnb came to mind for us that still felt local. There was a way to do it if we were authentic to our values and to that mission and caring. And we also heard from our customers that I'm a retailer in Alabama and I've never really been able to source a product from England or to France because I can't afford to fly over there for trade shows. But when I see some of these and, and I run into them or the rare times that I have, it certainly feels like something I'd be interested in. There's a story there. There's a craftsmanship. There's a care that's embedded into that product that reminds me of the products that I buy down the street. So I think we, we were hopeful and we had seen other companies do it well. I would say I've, I've still been surprised at how overlapping those values are. There's obviously lots of differences across countries and geos, and there's kind of a huge onus on us to make sure that we feel local and that we do a good job of building a, a local organization, a local product, and a local team over there. But the kind of underpinning desire to have great products that are curated in stores that are connected to their community and that reflect kind of the values of the people making them or selling them is so universal. It's been really amazing to see. Whether you're in Southern Spain or you're in Southern United States, it might manifest in different ways, but folks really do. I think there's an underlying kind of human desire to have that connection in, in those values. And, and we really do see it. And it was a hope and, and maybe a, a bit of an expectation, but I would say it's, it's surpassed our expectations in terms of kind of how similar those customers are and kind of how much they speak the same language and understand each other when they connect. Yeah. And Jeff, it may yet be a little bit previous to start talking about the positives of the pandemic. But I think one thing that already is becoming apparent is another big shift. And that's the way people look at the decisions they make day to day, the way they live, the way they work from where they source the products they buy. But you were kind of a little bit ahead of the curve in some respects in terms of being much more open, candid about health and well-being and this acknowledgement that in order to do good work and be happy in the world, you needed to look after yourself a little bit. If we roll back a little bit, you know, shortly after the kind of fair origin story, you moved away from the business. And obviously you're back now and you've, you've kind of supercharged the growth recently. But can you talk to us a bit about what was going on in terms of that decision? Because when you have originated a really innovative business that you're clearly deeply passionate about, probably the hardest thing is to to walk away. Talk to us about what was going on. Yeah, it was definitely a really challenging time for me. And I've talked a bit about this publicly. It was shortly after we started the company and I started it with a few other co-founders who are amazing and a huge reason, the main driver behind fair success. We, we all met at Square and we left and, and we started the company. And the idea was kind of born out of some experiences of Fair, one of my co-founders, Max, had had an umbrella company on the side and kind of been exposed to, to this part of the market. And I think kind of was the, was the germ of the idea and, and, and the motivation that became Fair. 
And we, I think had, we just got into YC. I had been maybe six months out of, of Square Max, a little bit more. Marcel and Daniele were leaving and we were preparing to enter YC. And I, you know, I've struggled at different points in my life with mental health and, and specifically with kind of obsessive compulsive disorder and, and OCD that, that manifests in, in different ways. And for me, I felt like at that time, you know, I thought I could handle it, but I think as, as we were getting into it, as we were starting YC, it became clear to me that I was going to struggle to kind of prioritize my mental health while we were also going through this really early moment in the company. And it was definitely very hard for me because I felt like it was a unique moment to start a company with people that I was as inspired to work with on an idea that was as inspiring and, and kind of motivating as any that we had circled. But I made the decision at that point to step away and I ended up spending probably about 18 months away from the company, maybe almost two years in full. And it was really difficult, you know, seeing the company grow when it was smaller. I had another awesome opportunity kind of that was a little bit later stage that I felt like was going to be more stable for me. And, and I learned a tremendous amount at a real estate company called Open Door. But I think I, I always felt some pull back to FAIR, both because of the team, because of the problem space. Obviously, FAIR was, was getting increasing traction as well. And I felt like my skill set hopefully would be really helpful for that next phase as well. But I think that in many ways for me, if, if I hadn't made that decision, I probably would have not necessarily been able to stay at FAIR or... or been where I needed to be kind of emotionally and mentally to, to have the impact that I wanted to. Yeah. And let me ask you then, Jeff, a little bit about some of your inspirations. I try and avoid asking smart entrepreneurs about, you know, for sort of um, buzzwords or, you know, mantras <laughs> or anything like that. But I do find it interesting if there are things, you know, there's certain truisms, presumably things like, you know, you learn more when things don't work out than when they do, etc. Yeah. But, but do you have particular moments or is it particular individuals that maybe you looked up to who did offer you advice or is it more moments or chances they gave you that stand out for you as being real key markers in your own growth as an entrepreneur and as a businessman? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm a huge believer in growth and trying to be as much of a sponge as you can around people. I, I think it's almost like a, it's like a shortcut when you can be around awesome people and just try to take from them whatever you can. So I've invested a lot and tried to be intentional about who I work for and, and when I see great people. For me, I'd, maybe there's a couple of, of things that have stood out. You know, one, and I, I use this word a little bit before, is just authenticity. I think the number one lesson I've learned from great leaders is just be yourself. And I don't think it's specific to startups or entrepreneurship. You know, I studied political science in school for a while. I thought maybe I'll, I'll go into politics, not as a politician, but maybe a little bit more behind the scenes. And I think you see it there too, where people can just kind of smell a phony. And when you're playing a role or you're playing a leader or you're trying to behave in a way that doesn't feel authentic, I don't think people follow you. When I think of the folks that I've, that I've followed more deeply, they're just themselves. And there's lots of different ways to show up and be a leader. And I think if you're true to yourself, you're going to be able to find kind of the lane that makes sense and that people follow. But as soon as you start trying to kind of put on a mask or, or play another role, it just doesn't resonate. I think I've, I've just seen really authentic different leaders and, and that stuck with me. The other thing is the importance of kind of team and values alignment. You know, if I think of one of the things, if, if not the single thing that has made FAIR so successful, I think of the talent and values alignment with the folks that, that we're building with. And I include... My co-founders, Max, Marcel, Danielle, and that as well as our CFO now, Lauren. And I could probably go on for, for 20 minutes talking about how talented all of them are, but I think the other piece is just how values aligned folks are built on a, a foundation of trust and, and being able to be direct with people, but having the same values around how you want to build an organization and the type of company you want to be, I think has been another big lesson for me. If, if you get that right and you're kind of there on the value side, a lot of other stuff 
you can get wrong and it's going to be okay. But at the inverse of that is if you get the value stuff wrong and you're all misaligned, it doesn't really matter how much you get right after that. It's, it's probably not going to work out. That's FAIR's COO and co-founder, the excellent Jeff Collifson. And you can learn more about Jeff, the brand and their story at FAIR.com. Next up, we're meeting two more champions of great small businesses who are also interested in fostering that sense of community. Bimble's founders, Francesca Howland and Julia Malaby, are here today. Francesca started her career in finance before building her own fine stationery business. From there, she moved into the luxury travel sector, where she created a digital business that enabled customers to book complex itinerary holidays. And it was then that she discovered that the travel review market was ripe for disruption, which led her to Bimble. Francesca's co-founder, Julia, worked for L'Oreal in Paris, where she lived for a dozen years, also working for Coty Lancaster and living in Toulouse, where she first stretched her entrepreneurial legs in the food sector before moving back to England and, via one or two other detours, joining forces with Francesca. Julia, Francesca, welcome. That's a bit of background, but tell us then about Bimble. What exactly, maybe rather than talk about the solution, let's talk about the problem first of all. As you both saw it, what was the issue? And there's little flickers of clues as to what it might have been, but what was the problem as you saw it that required a creative solution? So quite a nice footpath that leads to that. I was working for a travel company. So I had been hired by a travel company to create a digital product. So they sold holidays. It was based on a telephone-based sales model, and they wanted to become more digital. So we had put together a team to achieve that. And our launch destination was going to be Cape Town. We had a younger audience because it's a digital audience. And looking at the kinds of activities that the holiday company was selling very successfully, it was things like whale watching and a glass bottom boat trip. Um, I still don't really know what that is. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I know I don't want to do it. <laughs> so we, the challenge that we found was, OK, those are activities that our parents might like to do. What are the activities that we would like to do? Let's go to Cape Town. Cape Town was actually you know, brimming with exciting things without actually having people on the ground in Cape Town, trying to do that from the UK was an impossible thing to do. So it was just too difficult understanding, you know, people in our target group, like young people, how they like to hang out in an authentic way. So we found that there was all the, like we could through Google get all the places in the world, but that's not helpful because that doesn't really tell us where people are actually hanging out, how they're hanging out. That was one of the problems that we were solving was actually not building the tech to sell the holidays online. It was actually how do we unearth the great places? That's really interesting. And I, I guess part of that is this idea that you can have the the best time when you visit somewhere new when you are, maybe you've got a friend who has deep connections there or someone, you know, Julie, like you were saying, who's lived in a particular town for many years. Ideally, they might be a native or certainly they might have a couple of decades under their belt. Was this again part of it? It's interesting you used that word authenticity. And it is hard if you're a a tourist or a new visitor to a destination to experience the authentic or what you think the authentic is? Is it about them making a more sort of coherent representation of what that is, I, I guess. That's not, yeah. a very, not a very elegant way of putting it, but I think you're nodding politely, which hopefully means you maybe guess what I'm getting at. No, absolutely. I think that part of it is about travelling and getting understanding what people do in that area. But a lot of it is also about getting to know the area that you live in or the area that you want to move to and something that we'd both experienced having moved to different cities at different times. And actually, I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but I think that the moment we were doing this in that sort of after the Brexit decision had been made, 
Um, it's actually very relevant because it's a moment where people were talking about not encouraging people to move to new cities, settle into new places, etc. And it was something that was very much on our minds at that time. How do we make that easy for people? How do we actually encourage people to come and not be foreigners in our midst, just settle in, know everything that we know, that we could really share things in an authentic, real way? And that's about knowing where to go shopping, it's knowing where to go do yoga if you want to do that, or where the schools are, where the doctor, like all of these things that help people to fast track from being a newcomer to being a really integrated person in the society. Yeah, it's really nice. And I think there's this idea about sort of creating a neighbourhood almost, yeah. which is a thing we're very interested in in an abstract and very detailed way here at Monocle. But it's interesting that that's part of your vision. You mentioned Brexit. We all know the challenges that had on various aspects of, of life. You then, I guess, formulate this idea and it kind of gets started pretty much as a pandemic hose interview, Literally, which yeah. is probably the only thing more directly directed that could put a barrier in the way. Quite. <laughs> how, how did that work? I mean, it's a stupid question in a sense, because I imagine it made things very difficult and much more complicated than they needed to be. Uh, but Francesca, did it sort of strangely actually galvanise this view that this was something that was... I don't know, even more important because it was more yeah, difficult to do loads. it. So we launched literally, so we launched the app three weeks before a global pandemic. So within three weeks of launching, not only were people not allowed out of their houses, so they couldn't go out and explore, but equally businesses were closed, everyone had to stay in. So, you know, a crazy, <laughs> crazy unusual period for us without question. But what we learned from that was that whilst people had to behave in very, very different ways, we got to know our user really, really well. So we saw different behaviour in different periods. We saw at the beginning, in that kind of initial lockdown, we saw a lot of people just saving the places that meant something to them. So kind of the representation. That's something, by the way, we hear a lot is everybody has places that they feel say something about who they are. They're super proud of those places. Like, this is me. This is, this is you know, this represents me. And they love sharing that kind of information. Before Bimble, that is something that gets done by talking. Now they had a tool. They were stuck in their houses. There was a big digital uplift anyway in terms of usage. And now they had a tool that they could use that for. So we saw a lot of people sharing the places that represented them. And then as we started to move through, as, as lockdown really took its grip, we saw people planning holidays and also to, to really far away places like Bali, really dreaming that kind of escape freedom dream, but also Amsterdam and then kind of drilling down into what they would actually do in Amsterdam, city breaks. So it became very much travel, get me out of here, travel. And then towards the later stages, a huge amount of championing their local businesses. Mm. So as we'd all kind of become ever more dependent and appreciative of the support that they were giving us, but also the challenges they were facing, we saw a lot of that. Well, Julia, I wanted to ask you specifically actually about that, because there are other, obviously, people use social media platforms to share things they like. We know about Instagram stories or whatever it might be, and they often feature a restaurant or a, a local boutique or something that they might like, including some small independents. But I know you guys felt that there wasn't, um, well, there were flaws, maybe, certainly with review sites. And there was maybe a bias a little bit, maybe against some of the smaller independents that you wanted to address. Is that a, a fair point of why you felt there was still an opportunity to do something that was supplementary to what was already there? So we felt that the ratings and review sites create problems in two types of ways. So speaking to our audience and the young people, they said that they find those sites very difficult to navigate because everywhere's got 4.5 stars, so it doesn't really mean anything. So that doesn't help as a filter, and then they have to spend a lot of time reading the details of the reviews, understanding if they can who wrote those reviews, whether they're relevant, go onto websites. So having to do a lot of research around it and feeling frustrated. 
But equally, speaking to the small businesses and remembering that we're here to champion small businesses, that's what we really want to do. Speaking to those businesses, we found that they find those spaces very hostile. You know, they're always worried what's going to come up on a review. Are they going to get a bad moment? And if they do, the impact is really bad for them. So we wanted to create a space that was all about celebrating the places that we all love. And we thought very hard about how to do that in a way that still brings some kind of a filter that helps people to navigate whilst being entirely positive. And the solution we came with was a list-based architecture like Spotify, where people create lists of, you know, where on Spotify they create lists of the music they love. On Bimble they create place lists of the places that they love. And therefore they only put places on there that they want to hold on to. So there's no negativity. It's always making a list of the places I want to remember. And if a place isn't special to me, I just don't list it. Julia Mallaby and Francesca Howland, co-founders of Bimble. And from today, August the 3rd, more good news for you. Bimble's offering new updates for an enhanced user experience, including more geolocational and social layers, allowing increased interaction between places and the people who love them. Why don't you head to bimble.com and find out more now? That's all for this week. I'd like to thank Jack Dewars for the expert editing and mix of today's show. And of course, thanks once again to Jeff and all at FAIR and to the Bimble team too. And to mark your cards, this programme is heading for a hopefully well-deserved summer break for the next few weeks. Keep an eye on monocle.com for news of our return in September. If it pains you to even think about waiting that long, you can always listen again and raid the archive and find out more at monocle.com or wherever you get your audio. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks, as always, for listening to The Entrepreneurs. <laughs>